The following message is a part of the teaching ministry of Grace Bible Church of Fairburn, Georgia, also on the web at gracebible.faith. That's gracebible.faith. Lord, we continue to um, return thanks to you for all your kind graces that you've chosen to extend toward us. And we think about the, the testimony of the psalmist as we slowly work our way through the reading of Psalm 119 and uh, we see the appetite and absolute joy and satisfaction he had for your word, for the scriptures. I thank you that that longing was even um, expressed in such a way so as to, to say he was crushed with longing and, and great desire. Um, we hear those uh, words and it's they're almost uh, beyond what we can properly appreciate. They, they seem to escape what is beyond... Um, our own articulation, we want to love your word in such a way, and we think about that kind of crushing longing. Um, that's a transformative desire. That's a desire that will press someone to read, to study, to think about, to give themselves, and to, to really vigorously pursue obedience. And so to that end, Lord, would you cultivate that kind of appetite and, and pursuit of your word in our lives? And we know that no small part of that is just the engaging of uh, the reading of the scriptures, the hearing of the scriptures, the thinking on them, the, the participating and hearing them taught and, and engaging with those elements as well. So Lord, would you please help us? We, it's one thing to say we're people of the scriptures and that we love the scriptures, but Lord, that we would love them like the psalmist did. And we pray to that end that you would indeed open our eyes, that we would see uh, wonderful things from your word and that we would understand by the work of your spirit and, and grow in grace. We thank you for the testimony that Peter's provided for us, even as we um, press toward a, a very soon conclusion of this second letter and um, just the heart that he exemplified in, in caring for your church, uh, an expression of love for you uh, was expressed in his love for your church and not only the, the preservational care, but the, the pressing of us to look to and long for that day in which you will return, a day in which um, men will be held to an account and your church will be transformed. And we long for that day and pray that it would come quickly, and, but also recognize that um, this season is a time of patience, and may we, um, may we steward that patience in a way that honors you um, by declaring your excellencies and urging on uh, others to repent. We do thank you for this church body. Um, help us to be found faithful. We thank you as was prayed for the church in Armenia and ask that you would continue to help them and um, may they not lean on their um, historical pedigree but look to you um, and be, seek to be found faithful as they stand before you and to, to be faithful to that which you've declared and not just simply what has preceded them but uh, what is the truth of the scriptures. So, Lord, again, be our help to the end that we would exalt your name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so this morning our text will be 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. Um, I had planned, and even when I was, uh, we had our elders meeting this uh, last Friday morning, I was pretty clear that unless something unforeseen happens, I'm finishing 2 Peter today. And so... Um, true to form, the unforeseen occurred, and um, we're going to stretch it into next week, in part because there's 
I think a, a really um, valuable conclusion here, and I didn't want to I didn't want to short us on that. So I um, I'm grateful for these letters and want to make sure we finish them well. It's been a it's been a good journey through this process. But we're going to be in chapter three, verses fourteen through sixteen which again means that we will begin, not quite finish, but begin our final engagement with Second Peter chapter 3, and with that, the conclusion of the book. So let's read our passage together. We're going to begin with verse 1, because it's going to establish a necessary context. Um, I know you're becoming quite familiar with the contents of chapter 3, but you need to hear them and develop that proper momentum as we engage some of these final verses. So Second Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 16. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens burning will be destroyed and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as, our, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction." So we've given a number of uh, weeks to Second Peter chapter 3, which, again, which may initially appear like a, a peculiar decision because it was, a, it was really, it was chapter 2 that gave such an intensive treatment of false teachers. And if you just ask people in general, what's Second Peter going to unpack and talk about? Well, false teachers, and he's really going to go after them. Well, that was chapter 2. So why such an intensive and an exhaustive treatment going into chapter 3 as well? Because again, it was Second Chapter, uh, Second Peter, Chapter Two, where he exposes and rebukes the false teachers with a, a fitting measure of severity, very strong language. But when we came to Chapter Three and were introduced to the mockers, it almost appeared that Peter was more concerned with answering their core or primary offense, namely they're disputing the sure promise of Christ's return, and less concerned with providing an offensive assault on them as mockers. And so it appears there's maybe a shift in tone, as it were. Now. 
some may conclude this was because the false teachers and mockers are one and the same person. And I think that's a respectable conclusion. That's a very popular, common conclusion. So even though I'm not personally persuaded they're explicitly the same company, I'm open to this conclusion as there's almost, um, there's most definitely, there's an overlap among the offenders in matters of motivation. Carnal lust and like matters are fueling their errors and their ways. Um, there's the um, distortion of the scriptures. That's why the false teacher is successful. That's what the mocker does in his mocking. There's likely some overlaps in their messaging, as it were, and certainly their outcome is of a like nature. Now, part of the reason I do see a distinction in these offenders is that Peter clearly finishes, I would say, his rebuke of the false teachers. I think he comes to a really clear conclusion, finishing with that proverb-like statement that a dog returning to its vomit And it stops, it concludes there, and then he follows a like pattern that he used with the false teachers as he now engages the mockers and addressing again a precise but different offense and offender with the mockers. So let's walk through Peter's parallel pattern in addressing the false teachers and the mockers. So in 1, 12 to 15, he finishes the letter's introduction and um, an exhortation, uh, the beginning of the book, and then, which is directly to the believers, and then expresses his desire to provoke and help them to remember the truths that he and others have invested into them. Then in 3.1, after providing a conclusion to his engagement with the false teachers, he again addresses that he was writing to these believers to do what? To stir them up by way of reminder. So, Stirring you up by way of reminder, and I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. And then 116 to 21, Peter speaks to the authority of his testimony and to the scriptures as a whole, to the testimony of the apostles and the, and the prophetic word. So we have um, the testimony and the authority of the scriptures and the concluding charge, knowing this first of all, or know this first of all. Then in chapter 3, verses 2 to 3, he again is returning to the authority of the scriptures, the apostolic testimony and the prophetic word, after which he charges them with, know this first of all. And then finally in 2.1, Peter introduces the offenders, false teachers who will arise among the church body. Then in 3.3, he introduces the mockers who were anticipated to be coming as well. So there's a, a like pattern in introducing these two offenders, which contributes to my seeing them as two groups that intimately overlap. Because as I stated, there's some strong similarities too, namely their motivation by carnal lust and distortion of the scriptures. But the area of overlap that ultimately provides for the clearest distinction is their shared outcome, namely judgment. Now, I state that recognizing that if you walked with us through chapter 2, you're like, wait, the judgment had a lot to be said about judgment in chapter 2. That was a major point of emphasis. At 2.1, we saw the, the false teachers bring swift destruction upon themselves. In 2.3, the false teachers' judgment is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. 2.4 to 10, Peter lays out three dramatic expressions of historic judgment to demonstrate the sure outcome of the false teachers. And even the continued rebuke applied toward them through the remainder of the chapter has varying expressions of their sure outcome. So judgment is a major point of emphasis, but perhaps its most explicit expression came in chapter 2, verse 9, where he states, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. But... I've argued that this area of overlap that also provides the, uh, is also the area that provides the clearest distinction. 
And that comes in how judgment is unpacked in these two chapters. So that reference to the day of judgment in chapter 2, verse 9, gets much more fully explored through chapter 3. Now, this is because the context of chapter 3 is focusing less on the exposure and rebuke of the mockers and more on their rejection of Christ's promised return, which they reject because they must. They have to reject Christ's return because it is with the return of Christ that all things will be found out to be made laid bare, as it were, and with this will come a righteous reckoning and a divine cataclysmic judgment unlike creation or history has ever seen. So the mockers, unable to bear up under the weight of truth and what it demands of them, have chosen to do what? To mock to make little of, to make light of God's sure promises, thereby easing the profundity of their rejecting them. So if they're going to reject it, let's dismiss it first and let's undermine it by way of mockery. So Peter, in turn, takes the opportunity to expose their deficient understanding of the testimony of the scriptures by opening with, we see in verse 5, for when they maintain this, when they make this argument, when they, they state their case, it escapes their notice. That's a very polite way to say they don't understand the scriptures. They're they're contorting and twisting and abusing them out of their own malice intent. And rather than just making a a general statement like you did in chapter 2 about the the day of judgment, just the general statement, the day of judgment, he goes on to more fully express the nature of that day, why it has not yet come to pass. That's a very important element. How to live in view of its imminent arrival. That's also another very important element that we talked about as soon as last week. And he does this, um, he, and as he does this, he makes consistent use of terms uh, that express great destruction. So if you wonder back in my study over here, you'll see on the, the dual whiteboards, destruction and perishing because it's a, it's a key theme that's developing and just marking it and you see it quite plainly. So let's look at a few of these real quick. 3.6, the world at the time of the Noahic flood was destroyed. 3.7, there's a coming day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. 3.9, the Lord desires for men to repent and not to perish. 3.10, the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. 3.11, the natural creation will be destroyed. 3.12, the heavens will be destroyed. And so time and time and time again in chapter 3, you have destruction, destruction, destruction by way of divine undoing and exposing of this present creation and the righteous accounting of ungodly men. A time that's been prophesied about for hundreds of years, namely the day of the Lord, The day of the Lord, which will begin with the snatching up of Christ's church, cover the range of extraordinary judgments that unfold in the tribulation, usher in the righteous ruling of Christ from Jerusalem for a thousand years, see one final rebellion, the judgment of all the ungodly, and the ushering in of the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. And as we walk through last week, Peter makes these magnificent truths Uh, uh, he takes these magnificent truths together and then he states, he says, in view of all these things, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, all this destruction, all this judgment, all this perishing, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? And as you remember, he was not asking a question here. He wasn't saying, wow, God's righteous judgment. How do we respond? He's making an emphatic statement in view of these things, in view of the day of the Lord, in view of the day of God, in view of the new heavens, new earth, you are to be holy. You are to be godly. You are to be looking 
urgently, expectantly looking. You are to be looking for the sure promise of Christ's return, and with this you are to be looking for the conclusion of your sojourning with a view to the new heavens and the new earth where neither righteousness nor you will be strangers anymore. And what a comforting encouragement that is, especially in a context of so much challenge from the false teachers to the mockers and the nature of judgment to know that this will come to a fitting and righteous conclusion. And the Apostle John also speaks of this disposition of urgently looking. One of my favorite passages express that same kind of terminology. And he expresses that not only are we a people that are looking uh, not only are we are people that, wow, that's, it's good to have a good attitude. No, he says this is a, a transformative looking. Urgent looking is a transformative looking. So in 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 to 3, we read, See how great a love the Father has given to us, that we would be called children of God, and we are. For this reason, the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been manifested as yet what we will be. We know that when he is manifested, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. Now, that's encouraging. And we've built up a lot in terms of the nature of the false teacher and how to understand the general treatment of judgment and now the mocker and the more intensive addressment of judgment. But let me return to something I addressed but I never fully explained just yet. I noted that some find it strange that we've spent so much time in chapter 3, or even for that matter, if you roll the clock back and you think back to chapter 1, so uh, that was a number of weeks, maybe months ago now, why do we send such, such an extended time on these things? Well, we're going to return to these things at the end of the book next week, because Peter has a view to these things, and they're going to be what tethers us and strengthens us and keeps us. But why did we spend so much time on these things? And... Perhaps a reason that our extended time in chapter 3 might seem strange is that many have concluded that the false teachers and mockers are one and the same. So again, if they are, and I've argued otherwise, and I've laid out that the argument that because of the, the way the pattern of treatment and the nature of how he engages them, but I would argue that Peter was introducing a new threat and offense just as he had done with the false teachers, but at the heart of our investment. Why? Why we spent so much time in chapter 3? Why it was so necessary? and earlier on these things in chapter 1, is that Peter was not simply writing to expose and rebuke opposition. If we finish 2 Peter and you say, oh, it's a book to expose and really dress down false teachers, then I haven't really done my job yet, okay? This was not just a book to expose and rebuke the opposition, be it false teachers, mockers, or anyone else. Peter was writing as an apostle who dearly loved these believers, whom he has gone on to refer to as beloved four times in this chapter. That should catch our attention because not once has he said, has he directly, or directly called them beloved in this book up until this time. And now it's beloved, 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 beloved. Four times he's writing these beloved believers because the time of his own race is coming to a conclusion. A matter the Lord revealed to him on the shore of Galilee when he restored Peter from his moment of great shame and brokenness. So we have to remember, first and foremost, Peter loves these believers and he knows his natural life will soon conclude and he wants them to know, to grow, 
and to stay. Remember, that was our theme that we established for the book at the very outset, that you would know, that you would grow, and that you would stay, that you would remain. And to this end, no small matter that must both consume their attention and give their lives bearings is the sure and promised return of Christ to include his full and final judgments and the ushering in of the eternal state. So we have given such concentrated attention to this chapter because I'm persuaded that the mockers are a distinct group with their own attention and, and worth the, the weight of treatment. Yes, Peter gives these matters, um, but Peter gives to these matters surrounding Christ's return primary emphasis to include the intensification of his pastoral language and applications of response. And I think that's what he's driving at. He wants you to see, to hear, to understand the promises, to be transformed, them, transformed by them, and to hold fast in view of them. Because that's how you properly respond to false teachers, and that's how you respond to mockers. It's not just, ah, know thy enemy. It's know how to stay steadfast. That's what he's going after, because he loves the church. He doesn't just hate the enemies. No, 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 that's not the issue. He loves the church. And that brings us now to verses 14 and 15, where again we pick up that language, Therefore, beloved, since you are looking for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. So he states, therefore, or in view of your urgently looking to the day of the Lord and its climatic and glorious yielding to the eternal state, be found as a people fit for such a time. That's what he's aiming for. In view of, again, God's righteous and full, magnificent and terrifying judgment, in the ushering in of the eternal state, be found as a people fit for such things. And again, note t Peter's tone here. Beloved is such an affectionate expression of endearment and care. And I truthfully, I get disappointed about uh, when I see it smoothed out, I think unnecessarily in some translations. If, if your translation has this, don't mark it out and correct it or whatnot. It's just, it's a common thing that sometimes people will do. They'll say, they use language such as, dear friends, he doesn't say, dear friends. He says, beloved. And I think you lose something in that. And at the risk of maybe over-personalizing this reference that was expressed to his many readers, he's writing, obviously, to many, not just one here. I think the closest we might get to the affectionate and personal expression here is to mimic what Peter experienced in his restoration in John 21. He doesn't say, hey, buddy, feed my sheep. Hey, um, fella, Take care, of, uh, take care of my church. He's saying, Peter, Simeon, feed my sheep. Simon Peter, he, he's, effect, he's it's very personal. He knows him, he loves him. And so I think maybe an exercise that could help bridge the, the tone of affection and personal care that is being expressed by the term beloved the, uh, is to hear it with a gentle urgency that's rooted in great care and affection. And maybe we could do things like Again, not to, to over-personalize or, or become out of balance, but I don't have a problem with maybe including a name in there. And so I would might read, Therefore, David, in view of these things, be holy, be righteous, live well, live expectantly. So therefore, Brandon, in view of these things, or uh, therefore, Patricia, in view of these things, or therefore, Norma. So we can just keep going. So having that intimate connection, right? that association, that pastoral care, since you are looking, since you are urgently and expectantly looking for the coming day of God, urgently and expectantly looking for the new heavens and new earth, 
Be diligent. Be considerate. Again, not just, dear friends, this is something you should know. This is a, a pastoral, affectionate engagement. Now, in view of these things, how do we live? How do we respond with diligence and consideration? Now, I need to qualify that I'm using considerate in its less popular manner here and more with a view to its archaic usage. It just fit better, um, which can be used to express to examine or to consider. And that's really what Peter's getting at, examine or consider, but it fits well for me. So again, in your urgent and expectant looking, be diligent and be considerate. That's how we respond. So we can hold on to that, right? That's easy to hold on to. Now, what do we do with it? Well, diligent and peace and purity, considering God's patience for what it is, salvation. So diligence is, is not a new concept for this letter. So with Peter, a lot of times, um, especially when we look at the Gospel of Mark, which he was uh, the principal, um, uh, and uh, he, he's where the, the material from Mark came from, from Peter's messages. And he's just even familiar with the character of Peter. We, we think of him with urgency. And so when he says diligence, it's not necessarily the same thing, but you're going to get that like just an energized, uh, very hard-charging man. And so it's not a new concept for Peter or even for this book. In 110, Peter is called upon us to be diligent, to make every effort, to make certain of God's calling and choosing us unto salvation. So there's an urgency. You need to really know that you're standing well in terms of kingdom purposes with a view to the eternal things. So be diligent to make every effort. A diligence that's expressed in the supplying of our faith, remember, with moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and agape love. That's diligence applied in terms of knowing you're standing sure in terms of the future kingdom. Peter's also expressed his own diligence on his reader's behalf, as stated in 115, which again fits with his character, uh, that he would be diligent to make sure that they could call these things to mind after his departure. And so, He's working hard to that end. And so again, if we want to understand diligence, just think about this. He knows he's an apostle who has this uh, great pastoral affectionate heart and care for the people. He knows of suffering, First Peter. He knows of threats, Second Peter. And so he says, I'm going to be diligent. I'm going to work urgently and hard for you so that you will remember these things, so that you get this idea of diligence, how it works itself out. And so now we have one last call to diligence to be, found blame, uh, to be found in Christ, spotless and blameless. To be fin found in Christ, spotless and blameless. Now, we know that the earth and its works will be found out, right? That's God's righteous judgment, Second uh, Peter 3.10. They, they will be found out. They'll be found. And he's using that same kind of terminology here. You be found and how are you to be found? Well, the call here is to be found in a very clear manner, namely in peace and in purity. And that, that might sound really straightforward. Okay, be found in peace and purity. Let's go into diligent, or to the, um, the considerate matter. But when I was working through the text, and this is just part of being, I think, a student of the scripture, we don't just yield to, yeah, yeah, I get that, but asking yourself, what does it say? What does it mean? Press yourself. And I was trying to understand this statement, be diligent to be found by him in peace. And I was just not fully resolved of my own efforts toward a conclusion. I understand peace. I understand peace associated with Christ. But what is he communicating here? And then when I consulted various resources, there's a whole range of ideas and conclusions. And it was just that. It wasn't really anything intimately tethered to, this is exactly what Peter meant. It was, you know, peace in Christ. And this is how we can understand it. 
But in the Lord's kindness, you, you chew on the scriptures and you think on things. And as I reflected back on the first time that man had no desire to be found by God, then I began to appreciate the diligence of being found by him in peace. So think back to Genesis chapter 3. And you'll see the first time that man lacked the joy of being found by the Lord in peace. Because sin was introduced and man was now an enemy of God. Genesis 3, 8 to 10. Then they heard the sound of Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God in the midst of the trees of the garden. Yahweh God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. But we know that was not the end of the story, right? But the beginning of a long narrative of redemption that would be supplied through faith in the atoning death of Christ, a death that would provide the means for peace with God. We see this in Romans 5, 1 to 2. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in hope of the glory of God. So we see that sin introduced an obstruction and forfeiture of peace. That's why peace was forfeited, lost. But that peace is restored, it's secured and provided by what? Through our redemption in Christ. And if we are now commanded to diligently pursue peace, then we must be doing something in relation to our reconciled relationship to God and maintaining that and abstaining from sin. That's the only way we can be found by him in peace. So therefore, we must be putting sin aside and nurturing our souls on God's word, 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. We must be vigilantly strengthening our faith and assaulting our sin like it's a wartime enemy, 2 Peter 2, 11 to 12. We must view righteous suffering as God's means of stripping sin of its power and attraction in our lives, 1 Peter 4, 1 to 2. And we must be a people of holy conduct and godliness, a people who are urgently looking, knowing that as John has testified, that this urgent anticipation is itself a purifying work as we've read. So 2 Peter 3, 11 to 12 and 1 John 3, 1 to 3. And this is a piece that the ungodly lack, the ungodly lack, and it's a burden. If I've known one man that was had enough self-reflection and honesty that toward the end of his life, he recognized, I lack peace. And that's where, when I share the gospel, I want to press someone, you lack peace. And the unbelieving world and the ungodly lack peace. And so what do they often do in such a situation? You corner and you press. There's going to be a couple of different things. There's going to be a, a recognition or a crying out, what must I do? Or you have the common response, mock make little of, as they can only hope that Christ will not return as he has promised. Because if he does, and he will, then with this comes judgment. A judgment which will lay all things bare before him with nowhere to hide. So whereas they mock, we diligently pursue. Pursue to live in holiness Pursue to live lives of faithfulness that we would be found by him in peace. And note what is coupled with the peace here. What is to be included in our diligence. 
that we're to be found spotless and blameless. That we're to be found spotless and blameless. So the command includes being diligent to be found before Christ, spotless and blameless. And a reasonable response to this, if we were just having honest discussion, and I said, well, here's, here's your pursuit. This is what you're to be diligent at. So what are you going to do this week? What's on your, your short list of this responsibilities for this week to pursue, to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless? You just, if you honestly respond, you'd be like, that's impossible. I, I, it's like a lot of the death of most task lists. You make them in good faith, and then they just die because they're not, it's just not going to happen. And so you just don't even try. Or you die trying or just, but it's impossible. It's not going to happen. Well, yes, it was impossible. But if beloved, not beloved only of Peter, but if beloved of Christ, then it's been accomplished. Colossians 1, 21 to 22. And although you were formerly alienated and enemies in mind and in evil deeds, but now Christ reconciled you in the body of his flesh through death in order to do what? To present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This was a redemption that Peter spoke of with the same language that he employed here. Remember back to 1 Peter 1 when he's extolling our great salvation in Christ, verses 18 and 19 of 1 Peter 1. You were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your feudal conduct inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. And again, this is the, the nature of our redemption. In view of God's righteous judgment and the glories to come, we have been called to diligence, to be to apply, uh, diligence to applying all effort to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. Therefore, we spend our strength to this end. And the, all the while knowing that it's Christ who will bring this work to a sure completion, as Paul so preciously testified to in Ephesians 5 when he states, in verses 25 to 27, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And so now we, we take on that impossible call. Because it's not that task list that you say, well, it's never going to happen. It's the list that you know will happen. Christ will complete this work. And so what do we do? We diligently pursue it ourselves. Because now the impossible has been made possible through our redemption in Christ and the sure hope that, he will, that what he began, this purifying, sanctifying, cleansing work, he will bring to completion. And what do we do? We join him in that work. We don't just say, oh, well, that's going to happen. No, we are to diligently, urgently apply yourself to that end. Therefore, be diligent in peace and in purity, doing everything we can to faithfully participate in making Christ's church a ready bride for his sure return. And also, he says, be considerate. Properly consider God's patience for what it is. So we're to be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and also we're to be diligent to think correctly about the nature and timing of Christ's return, namely that his patience is salvation. And here I'm, again, I'm reminded of the engagement of man by God in the garden where we first saw patience expressing salvation. 
because while Adam and Eve did die that day, we recognize that. They, they did die. There was separation from God. The sin was introduced. But what didn't happen? They didn't immediately drop dead physically like was so dramatically recounted in Acts 5 of Ananias and Sapphira when they lied to the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's reasonable grounds to believe that. Why not? Outside of this was God's purposes, but part of God's purposes was an exercising of patience unto salvation. Because God, again, exercised patience just as he's done so many other times. And we've observed this as we work through chapter 3, verse 9, coming to the conclusion that this very season of history, this, this time where we are between Christ's ascension to heaven and his return, we live in this season of God's great patience. So Peter is calling on us to maintain a proper perspective of Christ's return, one that recognizes that God's word and promises are unbreakable. He will accomplish his purposes and plans, both in the manner and timing of his choice. Christ has not been delayed or obstructed in his return. It's not that uh, we haven't put the right pieces together or accomplished something that he's just waiting on and just, is it going to happen today? Is it today? No, he's being patient. God has chosen to engage with his creation in some manner that is beyond what we, I think, can honestly get our mind around, but he's chosen to engage with his creation in such a manner that the passing of time is experienced by him, and as each day passes, so also has an expression of his patience. So yesterday, we just lost 24 hours of God's patience being extended toward this world that they would repent and believe, and such is continuing to, patience is being applied and patience is being lost each day bringing an opportunity for man to fulfill the will of God expressed in his desire that they would come to repentance and not perish. Therefore, we, as Christ's beloved, regard the patience of God as salvation, as has been the patience of God that has provided the very opportunity of our own hearing and submitting in faith to the gospel. You know, whatever our stories might be, we've, we've, a lot of us have shared our testimonies over um, time, especially early last year. We, we have a range of stories, a lot of providential circumstances, a lot of experiences, but whatever our stories might be, this is our common testimony, that while in rebellious unbelief, in whatever degree of rebellion, in whatever degree of unbelief, we experienced the patience of God. He didn't take us. He gave us life, gave us opportunity, gave us opportunity to hear, to submit, repent, and believe, and to be born again. We were made ready for the return of Christ because of the patience of the Lord being applied toward us. We were made ready for the return of Christ and with him also the day of the Lord, the day of great judgment, the day that we don't have to fear, but a terrifying day for all those outside of Christ. And this is a most extraordinary matter that Peter states and then goes on to tell us that Paul also addressed such matters in his letters as well as in many other as well as many other matters surrounding Christ's sure and promised return. So let's look at this once more as we continue with this final section for today. 2 Peter 3:15 to 16. And consider the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. Now, which letters Peter may have been referring to is a matter of no small debate. Uh, it's argued that... Um, 
how much overlap, how much of the canon was complete, how did they view these things? We know that there was an understanding and a fluency with Paul's letters. Uh, they had gotten around some of the same areas, uh, including Galatia, maybe Ephesus, uh, that Peter was writing to. So we, But what we do know is that Paul was expressing a like sentiment of the patience of God by way of a larger argument in Romans, where he states, and again, whether this is what Peter is drawing from or not, we don't know, but we do know Peter, or excuse me, Paul expressing a like sentiment of God's patience in Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And we know that Paul most clearly wrote of Christ's return, which he expressed as our, our blessed hope. And he framed such matters with an expectation of righteous conduct of the same nature that Peter's been writing about throughout this letter. So there's a, a consistency in the apostolic message. But we see uh, in terms, again, of that blessed hope, Titus 2, 11 to 14, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us that denying ungodliness and worldly desires, we should live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that, we might redeem, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Now, we know that's Paul, right? But it sounds so much like Peter too, doesn't it? That driving you to an eternal perspective, recognizing your redemption in Christ, and how do you live in view of that? It's the same thing. Peter says, Paul is articulating these like manners. And we continue on, 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-7. The, the, this is the kind of people that you are, but you brothers are not in darkness that the day, would over, the day of the Lord would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 1 Thessalonians 5, 4-7. So again, as Peter has made plain... To know of Paul's letters is to know of a man who had a clear passion for Christ's return. Further, we know that what we have codified under the discipline of eschatology was something that was an early point of discipleship by Paul. Uh, the, the plainest and easiest example of that is to the, the letter to the Thessalonian church, one that he further developed in a, a range of ways in other letters as well. He continued to discuss the nature and timing of Christ's return and how to understand it. And by the nature of the subject of, again, what we've codified under the discipline of eschatology, there are inherent complexities. And there's a reason that I'm working through Second Peter and Frank's working through Revelation and, and, the, and like such things. There's a, a complexity to these things, and sometimes it's really hard to, to work through. But the scriptures speak with a sufficient clarity, right? We don't just punt the ball and say, well, whatever. Now, there is a clarity to these things, though admittedly not with the same measure of ease that maybe we'll find with such things like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Okay, I can get my hands around that. The list, I can, I can make sense of the elements and then the articulation of it, or the nature of love in 1 Corinthians 13 might be hard to put to action, but I can get my hands around it, quick reading, got it, memorize it, no problem. Or even our glorious salvation in Christ is expressed in 1 Peter 1, where we can be provoked to worship and thanksgiving and right thinking about our redemption. These things are clear and we can easily get our hands around it, but sometimes the nature of Christ's return and the surrounding events can be uniquely challenging. So, 
as almost to be expected, such matters were and continue to be distorted, twisted, or otherwise manipulated by unbelievers who have no capacity to fully and properly understand the truths of the Scripture, who vehemently oppose its demands upon them. And that's a major part. Why do they not want Christ to return? Because of what it demands of them. They have done this with Paul in a range of ways, the distortion, abuse of the scriptures, and contorting of things from the timing of Christ's return. We see that with the letter to the Thessalonians, the challenging of the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, and with manipulating grace into lawlessness. We see that a number of times. So they've taken Paul's articulation of truth and just, or challenged or twisted it. They've also distorted, Peter says, many other scriptures too. An offense that has and will continue to lead to their destruction by way of removing hope and, impo- and imposing judgment. That's the nature of their distortion. They've, they've stripped hope of its value or they've just imposed judgment by displacing truth. Um, it's the nature of, um, there's a reason certain gases aren't good for us in terms of breathing them in. It's not that the gas will poison us, it's that they've displaced oxygen. There's no room for oxygen anymore. They, they've displaced truth. And it's a fitting, I think it's fitting to note here that Peter, very matter-of-factly, also affirms Paul's writings as inspired scripture. He doesn't say, hey, you know, this is really something that's unanticipated. Just very matter-of-factly. Of course, it's scripture. He's an apostle. He's writing spirit-inspired scripture. And they must therefore be regarded as such, even though at times when he engaged in these matters, particularly eschatology, they could be challenging to understand. But again, Peter clearly does not provide an out for pursuing their clear understanding. He doesn't say, hey, it's really hard. Leave it to somebody else. He just says it's hard. Get to work. Don't pray things like Psalm 119, Lord, open my eyes and I may behold wonderful things from your law. And then be like, that's really hard. Next, the expectation is that while challenging, they're understandable and merit the work they require. All matters that Peter's readers would have understood and appreciated. I think probably, maybe a little bit of presumption, but his readers coming across that and be like, oh, I've seen your letters, Peter. I can't tell you how many times I've had to stand before you and say, boy, this is a hard one. And I've read different commentators after I've wrestled and thought, boy, this is really hard. And I'll read multiple times in my work through First and Second Peter, this is possibly the hardest passage in the scriptures. I'm like, how can that be? That was like two, three weeks ago or a month ago. And we haven't even got to Paul yet, and he's supposed to be the hard one. Some things are hard to understand and appreciate. However, this also meant that in addition to the opposition that Peter experienced by false teachers and mockers, Paul presumably experienced even more as, again, challenging matters press us to work hard, but they also become prime targets for those described as untaught and unstable. Two defining characteristics of the false teachers and mockers, and two characteristics that are the antithesis of pastoral leadership, which has clear qualifications. You look at those qualifications, it's the model of stability of life and home. This isn't somebody that's, that's an unstable guy, let's have him lead the church. What a mess as well as a clarity of understanding. So there's qualifications that model stability of life, model stability of the home, and a clarity of understanding of the scripture so as to teach, to lead, and to correct. Now, regarding, though, these identities of untaught and unstable, a range of things can be said, but W. Robertson Nichols stated, 
It signifies not so much unlearned as uneducated, a mind untrained and undisciplined in habits of thought, lacking in the moral qualities of a balanced judgment. Unstable refers more to conduct, those whose habits are not fully trained and established. So we need to understand that it's, it's not about degrees. A lot of these who drive themselves to error are thoroughly degreed. Um, it's not about degrees, the formalities of education, any more than it's about having mastered the art of a, of a perfect ta- calendar and task list. Oh, that's a, that's a well-ordered life. Not necessarily. Not necessarily stable. But while not disregarding education and structured habits for disciplined life, we recognize this is primarily about their lack of fundamental discipleship, a proper grasp of the scriptures and how to interpret and handle them, as well as lives that reflect necessary maturity to work through challenging things in the scriptures and that are demonstrating a clear progress and implementation of truth. That's what they lack. It's not degrees. It's not a good calendar. It's that they don't know how to see, hear, understand the scriptures or apply them to their lives. And so what do they do? They take hard things and they distort them. They're not persons struggling with the process of growth and progress. That's where we are, right? We if you're not struggling with growth and progress, it's kind of like weightlifting. It's like, well, this is so easy. You're not doing it right. There should be struggle to make progress. But those who are betraying a lack of rather any clear work of the Spirit of God in their lives, Peter also expresses the returns or outcomes of those who are untaught and unstable. They quite literally, what does he say? Tortures the scriptures. And the term for distort here, it literally describes someone being placed on a torture rack. That's, that's a very thoroughly unpleasant experience. So the, the, the body in that context is being pulled apart and contorted, uh, twisted beyond its capacity. That's a horrible picture, right? You don't do that to people. That's wicked. Why would you do that with the scriptures? And that's the nature of what they're doing. They're, they're distorting. It's a most terrible and common tactic of the false teacher in their handling of the scriptures, sometimes to the point that one would almost think they're... That's got to be a parody. It's so bad. It's so distorted. It's so manipulated. But the double tragedy is it's, it's not. They're just distorting and contorting and ripping apart the integrity and truth of the scriptures. They're really just applying their craft in ways consi- consistent to their ignorant instability. And that's not saying they're dumb. I am amazed at how Clear thinking and brilliantly articulate some of these people are. I sometimes I'm like, wow, that's, that's amazing and so tragic. Because what are they doing? They're distorting and manipulating and stripping it apart, often most punctuated in the areas of eschatology, which is where also you have a lot of cultish uh, pursuits, as it were. So manipulating the scriptures, not simply out of ignorance, but with malice intent and or out of self-imposed necessity to justify their carnal actions. This is the choice I've made, therefore I have to make scripture fit, which again is among the reasons that this course of conduct leads to their destruction, a destruction that is secured passively by some in ignorant unbelief and actively by others in their torturous distorting of the inspired words of God. This is why Peter, Paul, John, what we'll later see with Jude and other New Testament writers so vehemently oppose the false teacher and mocker. It's not that, boy, I just can't, I just can't stand that guy. He makes me look bad or 
He just, he's, he's messing everything up. No, it's an affection for the church because out of an affection for Christ and therefore also an affection for his word, that's why they have to oppose them. These are not conflicts of opposing ideas. They're open assaults on the word of God, assaults that will condemn and destroy them and condemn and destroy those who hear and heed their words, which is, again, part of the elder qualification to be able to rebuke exhort and encourage to restore, to address these errors. And such is why Peter will go on to finish with this final exhortation in its two commands. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard. So here's our first command. Be on guard, lest you, having been carried away by the error of unprincipled men, fall from your unsteadfastness. And our second command in the conclusion, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So he's going to finish, as we'll look at next week, be on guard and grow. That's what we're aiming at. It's not about, hope you understand how terrible false teachers are. It's not about the nature of, it's not just all these mockers, I'm going to shut them down because I'm tired of them bothering me. This is about you, beloved, staying steadfast and faithful through growth and guarding, being found faithful when the Lord returns, being found fit for his return. So we've seen that because we're a people who are urgently and expectantly looking for Christ's sure and promised return and all that will accompany it by way of judgment and glory, again, we are to be diligent and we are to be considerate. Diligent to be found by him in peace and in purity and having a right view to the nature of God's patience, that it is salvation. We've also seen that Paul's own contributions to the scriptures affirm these things and that they are challenged by those who have no regard for Christ, for Christ's return, or the larger testimony of the scriptures. And as I stated, next week we'll finish with Peter's final two commands to guard and to grow, and we'll see how they can help us appreciate the message of the book as a whole as we seek to put them to action because it's not that, oh, now he's going to finish with, hey, one final exhortation. This is what he's been developing throughout the letter. And I want to knit that together for us so that we also can heed those commands. We can guard and we can grow. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the love that Peter very clearly had for your church. We think about that um, extraordinary um, necessary but painful engagement on the shores of Galilee. And we can see now at the conclusion of his apostolic pastoral ministry, knowing that that uh, prophesied, stated conclusion to his life was now imminent, that he had finished the work that he was entrusted, that when he responded, yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you that what he was commanded to do in the care of your church, he's fulfilled. He was found faithful. And part of that faithfulness was uh, doing the hard work of guarding the flock, doing the hard work of exposing those who would introduce error and harm. But again, it wasn't just, he wasn't wolf hunting. He was sheep protecting. And I thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to be found faithful. Uh, we do want to see and to hear and understand. And we recognize some things are hard to understand. And we're, we're, we have a propensity to drift, to be, to be like water, taking the simplest, most direct, natural route. Lord, we, wanna, we don't want to do that. We haven't been commanded to, to just get there. 
We've commanded to be diligent. And so, Lord, would you provoke in us a, a righteous diligence um, to be found ready for you, to, to be diligent, to be thinking rightly about your patience and to, to see how that would provoke us to exhort and call others to faith. And to be diligent to, to wrestle through hard things, not so that we can be intellectually stimulated or satisfied, but that we would uh, search out these treasures and all the better know you and uh, to all the more anticipate and all the more think about the glories to come. Again, we give thanks to you for these things. We ask that uh, should you choose to come today, that you would find us faithful. And should you choose not to come until we finish our races, then find us uh, persevering through and to the end. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.